Welcome everyone to the Immigrant's Journey podcast, where we share stories of living abroad from around the world. Today, we are so happy to be chatting with Shalom Osiadi, an entrepreneur with over a decade working in the IT industry. He has worked for some of the biggest names in tech and has worked with some of the world's most innovative technologies. He's an award-winning college graduate, having designed a non-invasive glucose monitor for diabetics in his final year as an undergrad. He has raised over 300000 for startups in the past, including Aska, his current venture. Shalom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Carmen. Looking forward our to this. Our pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely, our pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born, what was it like, what do you remember, and what was it like moving to Ireland? Yeah, so um, I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, back in 1993. Jesus, I sound like an old man. <laughs> and grew up, obviously, in Lagos for the first nine years of my life. Um, the year I turned 10, we moved here to Ireland. And yeah, we've been here ever since. So that's essentially my my background. Now, my family, my mother is from another part of Nigeria called Emo State. My father is from Delta State. But um, I've Born and bred in Lagos um, since I was a kid. So I'm a Lagos boy at heart, but really I'm a Dublin man. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. A little bit of everything. And do you have siblings here or are you an only child? I, I have one sibling. She is a student doctor. Pretty much all of my immediate family is is here, but it's just the one sibling. So it's me and her, thankfully, because I, I don't really like to share food that much. So. <laughs> Very good. So what's something about your culture that you missed when you first moved to Ireland? Food. Yeah, that's a big one. It's definitely one. It's it's always a big one. It's always food for me is inherently a part of who you are as a person. And, you know, when I moved here, I kind of realized very quickly that how they viewed food or, or how the Irish public view food and interact with food is vastly different to how you know, us Nigerians view and interact with food. Um, the flavors are bigger, bolder, very colorful. Um, you know, some meals are required to eat with your hands, you know. Um, so those are some of the things that I definitely missed. But, you know, I think things are slowly starting to change now here in Ireland. Definitely. And especially in Dublin, because it is such a multicultural city and we literally have everybody from everywhere living here. And you see the restaurants and cuisine options reflect that, which is amazing. And um, we're going to get back to this because I want to talk about Eska, because that's a really cool <laughs> idea. But right. first, I want to ask you about what was your experience like first moving to Ireland? What were some of the obstacles and some of the tricky things that you had to navigate culturally to integrate here? Well, for me, you know, I I guess one of the first ones that I realized almost immediately was the freedom. I think that a lot of Irish kids had over, you know, myself and um, some of my peers in in my household, you know, obviously in the Nigerian household, it's always quite strict. You have very stringent guidelines to follow. And if you step out of line, you know, you, you, you got an ass whooping, you know, let's be real about that. In the Irish culture, it was a lot more lackadaisical, you know, kids are, are free to sort of move around more, try more things. Those are some of the biggest sort of things that I noticed when I moved over here. And outside of that, it was really just sort of understanding you know, how they interacted with one another. It, it might not sound, I, I don't really know how to express it, but there is a, a vast difference with how you interact with 
a Nigerian family friend, for example, than how you would with an Irish family friend. Mm. And both changes, because I was still quite young. I was didn't know who I was. I was a child. You know, I was still very much under my parents' roof and still trying to find my voice in a sense. Um, so that I definitely struggled with that cultural shift, you know, it was like, who am I? You know, why, why do I talk like this? And my peers talk like this, you know, why do I have this accent? And my peers, you know, are, are, are sort of, you know, making fun of me because of this accent and stuff like that. So it led me to do a lot of self-searching and, you know, self-discovery many, many years, to be honest. But those are some of the key things that I still remember till this day where issues for me is, you know, that freedom aspect and just the interaction. Definitely. I think a lot of people have that same struggle. It's just communication is everything, but communication is also integral to a language and to a culture and a culture's history. So having come from the outside in, there's definitely going to be a lot of um, learning and adjustment in that area. When you were in school, what got you interested in the whole entrepreneurial venture? Because you've done a lot of stuff for such a long time. <laughs> I have. Um, I, I have. I was actually having a discussion about this earlier today or yesterday with my team. Um, and these are guys I've worked with for many years. And we're just looking back at like over the last couple of years and like, wow, we've we've worked hard. <laughs> you know? I guess to answer your question, what got me into entrepreneurialism was actually um, a family friend of ours who tried to get my parents set up with an e-commerce business back when e-commerce was pretty much not a thing. Basically what happened was he told my parents about this business idea. My parents were like, yeah, I don't know how to use computers. This is not going to work for me. And uh, he was like, okay, how about Shalom? Because, you know, I know Shalom was into computers. And at the time I was very, very into computers. And he came to me and showed me this thing. And within 24 hours, I was hooked. After my first month, I'd made a good bit of money. For me, it was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This was in fifth year. Switched my CAO forms changed all of my choices, put everything in tech, everything in in computing. So this was back in 2009, I think. And that was when my brain really started thinking about business and entrepreneurialism. But I had started thinking about computing, you know, before this. What was the e-commerce business? What were you selling online? So again, this is something that's widely spread today, but at the time was very niche. So have you ever heard of affiliate marketing? Of course. Yes. So we were essentially the legacy affiliate marketers. What we did was we partnered with big brands like Lufthansa, Tesco, a lot of domain name sellers, GoDaddy. Um, other brands who aren't around anymore, iPage, FatCow, etc. And we would essentially drive traffic to their websites by giving our users some sort of reward, right, for actually utilizing our service. So let's say, for example, I actually I built this website called freegiftsmadeeasy.com, right? And basically what it was, it was a very plain HTML website, but it was all SEO. A lot of keywords targeted towards Google to put me to the front page of Google. So every yeah. single time somebody would search a plane ticket or I want to fly to Germany or whatever, I had Lufthansa as a partner. So my website would come up and then it would give this person the option of getting X amount off on a flight with Lufthansa. Once they clicked that button or that advertisement, I would get paid. Right. Nice one. So that was 
that was how it worked. And then we progressed into like eBay and Amazon ads and we would build websites around all that kind of stuff. Can't really do that kind of stuff much anymore these days. But back then it was very much, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so that's essentially what it was, affiliate marketing. So for those who don't know, SEO's uh, search engine optimization, optimization how important is that still to get right when building a website and trying to get your stuff in the front first page of Google results? Absolutely crucial. In fact, I think without SEO, so SEO is 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 a core part of your digital marketing strategy. Yeah. Um, a lot of people focus on social media and advertisements, and those are huge as well. But without SEO, you're missing out on that organic sort of traffic that uh, your website essentially could be generating. So for us, it's it's still the top thing that you know I would advise any entrepreneur to, to, to start with before they go off and build social media. Now, the tactics I used back then are no longer, you know, they don't work anymore. So now I have to hire people that know what they're doing. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's definitely one of those key strategies that you have to look at. Yeah, definitely. It's amazing how technology evolves and the speed at which it evolves. And a decade goes by and all of a sudden, all your information is outdated. You need youngins to come in. Exactly. It's like, Jesus. (laughs) So tell us about Aska, which has been described as Uber Eats for ethnic food. But it's Mm. more than that because you can buy and sell food and drink made by people in your local community, which I think is really cool. How did you start collaborating with and finding cooks that you could link to your business? So when we initially started Eska, um, the first sort of port of call was, you know, we'd go to restaurants, et cetera. But this was during the pandemic and restaurants were struggling. In fact, a lot of our early customers had to close and shut their doors. So we looked around, we said, right, how do we address this issue? And I personally, as I said at the start of this call, food is a big thing for me and Nigerian food specifically holds a special place in my heart. And there are a lot of vendors on social media who make fantastic, you know, whether it be Nigerian, Indian, Turkish, whatever kind of food, but they don't have a presence, right? They, what they do have is a small community of people that know who they are. So what we decided to do was to build a platform for these guys so they could get the exposure outside of their immediate communities that they need needed to actually start, you know, selling their meals. So I just started approaching a lot of these micro food vendors on Instagram and telling them about what we were building. Slowly but surely, we went from five to 15 to 25 to 30 to 50 to 60 and so on. Um, And that was essentially how we managed to get our first, you know, bunch of suppliers onto the platform. That's really cool. And how has it been going since you started? It's actually been going very well. I mean, month over month, we're growing at least 10%. Um, The height of our growth in terms of users was a 60% month over month. And in terms of revenue, I think we grew over 300% in one month. Now we are obviously, you know, with every business you face challenges and you need to come up with innovative ways to solve those. And we are definitely experiencing some of those now. So we are now building those innovative solutions uh, to fix some of those uh, problems. Very good. And how effective do you think social media is in terms of getting people from local neighborhoods aware of what you're offering? I would say it's everything, you know, because one thing that we have seen as well is social proof is a big deal. So let's say, for example, you know, you've never tried Brazilian food before, but I'm your best friend. And I just came to your house today with 
a nice bowl of, you know, Brazilian food. And you try it, and then you're like, okay, I like that. Tomorrow, what do you do? You place an order for Brazilian food. Yeah. And then you do the same thing to your friend, and, you know, the cycle continues. Social media is a virtual, is is that experience done virtually. So as people are seeing more vendors doing X or, you know, people eating a certain type of food, that will increase the thirst and the wants that they have for that type of food. So it's absolutely crucial for you know, I think any business who wants to really scale um, organically, in a sense. Um, so, yeah, it's been huge for us. That's amazing. And that's that is so true. I remember one of the first girls that I interviewed for the podcast She's from Italy. And she was saying because she moved quite young like yourself here. And she was saying that when she would go to school with her home cooked meals, people would be like, oh, what's that? And yeah. it smelled funny. And now it's like everybody wants ethnic food, things that are a bit yeah. more flavorful, more interesting to the palate. But it does take a while for people to find it acceptable. But then again, as you were saying, social proof, people try it, they like it, they recommend it to their friends. And the more people witness that, the more they're like, oh, I'll try that. So that's exactly. a really interesting one. Do you think that using YouTube would be of any use at all in terms of like showing like a little video of a local vendor with what the food looks like and stuff like that? Because I think people like visuals, not just in photograph, but also yeah. in like video. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and one of our hopes is to actually have, you know, these sort of how to classes. It's kind of like, you know, we would show one of our cooks actually making or preparing a meal and then put that on YouTube for people to see how, you know, a goosey soup, for example, is prepared. So that's definitely on the roadmap. And as you said, videos speak, you know, louder than uh, pictures. So yeah, definitely a good point. That's a really cool thing. I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to what, witnessing the evolution of this business because I love ethnic food. Like the more awesome. exotic the better and I love <laughs> African food and Asian food is definitely my favorites. You've been involved in this world as a co-founder of something called Euro Foundation. Correct. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Euro was an exciting time in my life. Um, so a few of my friends, you know, we all worked at uh, the largest utility company in Ireland. I'm not going to say the name, but you could probably figure out yep. who that is. So we were all on the same graduate program and we, you know, we had worked on some similar projects, consulted for some other teams and stuff, but we wanted to do something for ourselves. And, you know, we, my friend came to me and he was like, look, I have this, you know, concept of a, a cryptocurrency and you know this is what it does bloody blah, blah um essentially what euro was was a stable currency or cryptocurrency that was algorithmic algorithmically backed by a basket of five fiat currencies okay with a different weighting I'm not going to go into the technicality of this because <laughs> your listeners will fall asleep but in <laughs> essence it was a way for users of crypto to essentially safeguard their assets when the market was going down and up. So it's essentially, if I give you one euro foundation token today, you get one euro foundation token back tomorrow, regardless of what the price of Bitcoin is. Okay. Okay. And that was a lot of fun. Um, so we built that. We uh, were this close to getting, you know, a lump sum of 2 million euros funding. Um, and on the day of our investor meeting, we were literally sitting face to face uh, from this, from our investor, and um, the market started to crash, 
and it just continued to crash. And he asked us a question, you know, which basically had something to do with Black Swan events and stuff. And we couldn't really answer that question very well. And that was literally the end of, uh, of Euro on that ah. day. <laughs> it was so sad because um, we had so many grand plans and, you know, things continued for a little bit after that, but the market didn't recover for at least a year. Um, you know, and so that kind of led us to to leave Dash and just continue with our nine to five jobs. But yeah, crypto. I'm still a, a heavy crypto investor. Um, I I I know the space quite well, and I I it is the future of of money. It seems to be. What advice would you give for people who are interested in dipping their toes in the crypto world? Definitely do your own research, and this is something that you're going to hear a lot. Is like you know before you give your capital for any financial instrument, whether it be a stock or a cryptocurrency, make sure you understand what the company behind that stock or cryptocurrency is doing. Make sure you like what they're doing. Make sure you know the team. And, you know, there are other factors for you to consider as well, but it's always the risk. It doesn't matter what market you're investing in, foreign exchange, stock, bonds, it doesn't matter your money will go up and it will go down. That is a certainty. So as long as you're okay with that and, and are willing to take the risk, I would say dip your toe in, you know, buy a few Bitcoin, hold it for a couple of years, see what happens. You know, there are people right now, I had a discussion earlier um, with Papa, it wasn't with Papa John, but someone consulting for them and talking about how the first ever real world Bitcoin transaction was done over a Papa John's pizza. The guy that bought that pizza would be a multi-millionaire today mm. with the money that he spent on that pizza. So just think about that. That's that's just the way I'd like to justify it for myself is that this is a market that is still, still so small and growing at such a large rate. Um, there's no harm in just taking a risk. For them, if it's 10 euro. It yeah, what's what the, seriously, what is 10 euro? You know, it's like, just try it. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. is something that you wish to contribute to Irish society? This is a good one. Diversity, multiculturalism, anti-racism, openness. I don't know. Love. Uh, for me, the biggest, the biggest things for me are diversity. I, I think for any country to succeed, especially the way a lot of Western countries have succeeded, diversity is absolutely crucial because without other points of views and other perspectives on similar things, you will never progress past a certain point. And us as a society, especially in Ireland, being open and accepting to other people from other parts of the world is going to be so, so crucial to our eventual growth as a country and and an economy. Um, So for me, I feel like just to have an open mind, you know, embrace people with open arms. It doesn't matter where they're from, you know. Um, and stop asking people, oh, but where are you really from? Like, who, who cares? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, who cares? Like, just enjoy them as as a being, as a human being, and interact with one another on a human level, regardless of skin tone, religion, or any other thing like that. So that that for me is a big thing. And the other one is wealth generation. Mm. That's just the personal mission I have is that I want everyday people to be able to make money Um just like the big guys can, you know, by doing everyday things. So those are the two things I would say I want to contribute to our study. Those are really audible goals. I love it. <laughs> How do you think that being an entrepreneur and trying to 
create jobs has changed you as a person or developed you as a person? Mm, That's a great question. I think it's allowed me to see the complexity of companies, number one. You know, the fact that you can sit in a comfy job and get a salary, that is a miracle. (laughs) Like, you... You know, as a as a person, whoever's listening, if you're sitting and you have a job and you're getting paid the same amount every month, whoever's running your company, clap for them every day because there are a lot of hurdles that you don't see, you don't need to see realistically, that are happening to keep your paycheck coming. So I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is that, you know, security in a job is a godsend for those who are able to have it, you know? Uh, yeah. You know, because it's, it's not easy. And there are months, you know, we've had it in ESCA, you know, I've had people leave the team because I couldn't pay them on time or whatever. You know, it is what it is, but those are some of the hurdles that you face as a, as an entrepreneur. So definitely being able to keep money ticking over is yeah. the biggest one. Yeah. I think that's a big lesson I've learned. For anyone who's interested in getting into the job creation game, what advice would you give them? Find something that people want and then find other people that are good at making that thing and just run. Run as fast as you can, clear all obstacles, remove any negativity from your mind and just go. If you fail, you fail. But you failed upwards. You know, you failed with a lesson that this is what I don't do next time. And this is how I should tackle this problem next time. But I would advise everybody to give it a go at some stage in their lives. You don't have to do a full time. Could be a side hustle. And this is another really great aspect is that inside hustles, you can easily outsource everything that you do, whether it's writing emails, blogs, building a site, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, your vision is all that matters. And you can then employ people to build that vision for you. So yeah, just go, just try it and see what happens. Um, I feel like people don't, and it again, it comes back to the stability piece. You have the yeah. security of that constant paycheck. Now, what if I try something and it doesn't work? But like you said, you can do it part-time. So exactly. Exactly. I, I know it's difficult when you have a partner and you have children because children really consume all of your extra time. But if you don't, yeah. give it if a whirl. Even if you do, you know, just try it. Like, I'm sure your kids aren't on you 24 hours a day. And if they are, <laughs> I, I apologize because I'm not a parent. So I don't know what it's actually like. But, um, you know, even if it's one or two hours a day, you know, my mom, for example, started her own website during the pandemic. It's a woman with no technical skills. And she just invested the time. And, she, you know, she's running a blog now. People are reading her, her stuff. And I'm like, that's pretty awesome. So it doesn't matter. Just have a go at it. A couple of hours a day, see what happens. What do you feel that Ireland has to offer that is not available in other countries or maybe in your experience in Nigeria? Oh, very, very good one. Um, Social responsibility to the citizens. I think Mm. that's that's just the biggest one is that if you don't have a job, the government will look after you. If you want to start a business, the government will give you money to start a business. Um, If you have an idea for something or you want to bring something to life and say, the government will assist you in some sort of way. You don't have that in third world countries. You don't have that in, you know, other parts of Europe, et cetera. Uh, that's a really big deal. You know, even just having the ability to get a home 
you know, in Nigeria, for example, if you don't have a home or if you don't have money to put yourself, get a roof over your head, that's it. There are no avenues to turn to. It's like, it's me or nothing. So that is a big deal. I think that the Irish people sometimes forget is that your government does a lot for you, a lot for you. And that tax that you pay on your monthly salary is definitely going towards a good cause. Um, so that's for me the biggest one. It's just social care, Give, giving a rat's ass about their citizens. That's it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think it's exactly as you said. Um, sometimes people living here don't appreciate that. Go live in America for eighteen years. Exactly. Go live in Brazil. Exactly. And lose your job you know, and see what's going to happen yes, to you. No, imagine spraining your ankle and then you have a hundred thousand dollar bill. It's like what? <laughs> that is the reality of life in America for people. It's crazy, you know. <laughs> hundred percent. But as good and functional as things can be, there's always room for improvement. So if there was one thing that you could improve in your life here, what would it be? Diversity. Mm. Diversity. I think Ireland is being held back by this mentality of, and I'm, I'm look, I could be wrong. And I'm sure a lot of people will listen to this and be like, what's he on about? But I feel like Ireland is being held back by the lack of other opinions in high places, mm. the lack of diversity in places like the Dáil, on Gardaí you know, um, the, the, the HSE. I think if you look at the UK as an example, you have droves of Irish youth fleeing the country as soon as they have their degrees, or even sometimes after, you know, secondary school, because they can see what's coming. And it's always the same vanilla, you know, plain Jane, added towards life and I think to spice things up a little bit and just to get the you know to get the country to where it needs to be you need a little bit more diversity people like me and you making decisions about certain things because we see outside of the Irish status quo yeah that's Uh, true you know so that would that's that's what I would say on that is just we need we're getting there but we need to get there faster (laughs) <laughs> and we just might do yeah, for people like you coming up with uh, what exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I have one final question for you. What yeah. do you know now that you wish you knew when you started your career? Oh, <clears throat> making mistakes is not a bad thing. I wish I knew that back then. You know, I think in college, especially, you're sort of taught this, like, if it, do it this way and you'll have this answer. You're not thought, oh, do it this way, see what happens. Yeah. If you don't get it, try it again. Um, I think my propensity to failure or my openness to failure is a lot broader now because I've experienced directly from failing what success looks like. Um, and I think if I knew back then what I know now, it would be, you know, definitely be open to, to making mistakes, be open to failing. And most importantly is be open to taking risks. You know, you can't fail if you don't take a risk. You know what I mean? So those two things I wish someone had told me when I was 14, 15 years old. I think that's wonderful advice. And yeah, because from every failure, there's a lesson. And like you said, you're not going to repeat the same thing. You're going to do something different. And it's a great way to learn and adjust, recalibrate and keep going until you figure it out. (laughs) And that is how we figure it out. You know, There is no life without risk, essentially. That's it. Yeah, it's an endless process of trial and error. 
That's it. That's it. Well, Shalom, listen, I know you're a busy man. I just want to thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us and sharing a bit of your story and some of your struggles and success. We wish you all the best in your ventures. We thank yes. all the listeners for listening. And until the next journey, ciao. Thank you very much. It was great being here. <laughs>